0: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network podcast. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm talking with Anuradha Chakravarti. Anu is an assistant professor of political science at the University of South Carolina and the author of a fascinating new book called An Investigating... Oh, I screwed that up, didn't I? All right. Sorry. Start again. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network, of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm thrilled to be talking with Anuradha Chakravarti. Anu is an assistant professor of political science and the author of a fascinating new book called Investing in Authoritarian Rule, Punishment and Patronage in Rwanda's Gacaca Courts for Genocide Crimes. The book is a fascinating examination of the motivations and behaviors of ordinary Rwandans as they tried to wrestle with their genocidal past. Products of many months of field research, it is full of firsthand testimony from Anu's interviews. But, and I have to say, as a historian, what I found most thought-provoking about the book was the theoretical framework, both at the micro level and the macro level. Um, It's not something I'm used to doing. It is something I guess I'm used to reading. Uh, Anu does it particularly well. And I learned a lot from it. And so I'm really looking forward to digging into the book with her. Anu, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books in Genocide Studies.
1: Thank you, Kelly, for having me. So I
0: start with the same way, Anu, and so we'll start with that. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you came to be a teacher and researcher.
1: Um, I come from a family of teachers. So mm. it's, you know, sort of, I, I came to it almost unthinkingly, like it was the most natural
2: or obvious <laughs> thing
1: for me to do. Um, and I, I think the same goes for my research. I was naturally drawn to sort of human rights questions, um, um, uh, and and the Rwandan case seemed so fascinating, so full of puzzles that had to be explained. Um, you know, here was an authoritarian state uh, trying to punish people uh, on a mass scale, and you had mass participation. Or a cooperation on a mass scale from the population that was being punished, and 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 so it presented these fascinating, fascinating questions, uh, uh, you know, that that you know, that were just begging to be answered. Um, and uh, as I was looking through the literature on the courts, the literature on uh, the growing authoritarianism in in Rwanda, I found that. Much of the analysis had sort of overlooked the, the nuts and bolts of these courts, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. The confessions, the denunciations, the judging. There was a lot of talk about lay judges, but we sort of knew nothing more other than broad generalities like the judges were peasants, semi-literate or illiterate peasants. Mm-hmm. But who were they? What were their socio-economic profiles? What were their political backgrounds? You know, what were their political attitudes and political profiles? What about their memberships, past Mm. or present in political parties? We knew next to nothing about um, these things. Um, How was it that uh, the number of people who were accused um, rose so dramatically Mm. from a quarter million to more than a million? Um, Why was it that um, in the beginning those who were accused of genocide, were actually holding out from responding to the incentives. The mm-hmm. government held out the offer of plea bargains pretty early in the process. And yet the the number of people who confessed in those early years was relatively few and far between. And you have a very slowly rising upward curve uh, where the confessions are concerned. Um so why was that? Why why did people take so much time to respond to the incentive, uh, mm-hmm. to the incentives? One would imagine they would jump at the chance to get a reduced sentence, to 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 leave prison and go back to their homes, even if it, if it was on temporary parole. Um, so those were the kinds of questions that that I was looking at. They involved human rights questions. They involved moral ethical issues. Uh, how how is it that what are the pro- Prospects for interpersonal reconciliation, for instance, uh, and while that the book did not address that directly, the the book um, does touch upon these these questions in in quite mm-hmm. a bit of detail. Mm-hmm. Um, and what are the implications of these micro processes and these verdicts for for uh, the political consolidation of the authoritarian regime? Mm-hmm. A lot of the existing work had looked at repression top down repression and the assessment was that you know the courts are an imposition on 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 uh, popular preferences and you know people people are resisting these processes in their different ways um and and but i was i was interested in sort of a, a different take on it that while there was resistance there was also there was also cooperation there was also voluntary participation there was also there were also responses to a variety of incentives some direct and obvious and some tacit and not so obvious um and i was interested in sort of exploring how um how the ins- how incentives operated mm-hmm. within this larger mm-hmm. institutional authoritarian structure
0: so so, as I said, I'm a historian um, why why did you think why did you find the disciplinary lens of political science the right way for you to understand those kind of questions?
1: I am trained as a political scientist, mm-hmm. so I am most familiar with political science frameworks. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 I was influenced by game theoretic designs, although that is not one that I articulate mathematically mm-hmm. uh, but that is exactly that, that is the that is the theoretical framework that has been used um i was interest i was very influenced by recent work on informal institutions
2: mm-hmm.
1: um uh that has been emerging in political science um i My mentors were political sociologists and political economists oh, wow. huh. so um, I, I I trained under Sidney Tarot at Cornell and Nicholas Vandywall mm-hmm. um, also at cornell and 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 so my my approach uh, while political science is very interdisciplinary <laughs> uh-huh. so I draw freely I choose to draw freely and um, large parts of the the data are ethnographically derived, mm-hmm. but that mm-hmm. is the only way in which I could excavate uh, uh, people's true feelings
2: <laughs> yeah. about
1: about about their own behaviors, their their own understanding of what was going on, and why they were participating or why they choose uh, were choosing to hold out. Um, and 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 so the the whole and the entire trials process was such a complicated one. There were so many layers of secrecy and mm. misinformation and. That, that without uh, resort to good ethnography, good long-term immersion um, into life around the courts, it would be next to impossible to really know how these things work. Who was related to who, for instance? Um, were the judges local elites? How would one know? Mm. Um, uh, how would one know? Um, and so, so I, I, I draw freely from anthropology, from sociology, um, um I, I i draw freely from um uh, insights from economics um and 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 but i'm very much a political scientist mm-hmm. okay? i am i'm embedded in a political science department um and, and so that seems sort of to me the the natural way to go um but you will see um uh, you know i if you know there's an audience out there that reads the book yeah. how interdisciplinary it really is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: This is one of the the advantages and challenges of, of studying mass violence, is that it is it is so dis- interdisciplinary, which which simultaneously is a challenge in that you have to acquire this many skills. It's obviously an opportunity. It's a weird kind of challenge, maybe not a weird kind of challenge, but it's an institutional challenge, because at least in my experience, universities don't know where to put people like us.
1: Yes, I, that is absolutely right. Um, and while there's so much talk of interdisciplinary, Disciplinarity or multidisciplinarity, I think mm-hmm. when you're, at, at most places, um, I as far as my knowledge goes, uh, you're hired, you need to have a disciplinary home. Yep. There are few interdisciplinary centers that have any hiring powers. So, you know, at the end of the day, you need that, that foothold within your discipline and you have to establish yourself, you have to publish in disciplinary journals and establish your disciplinary yeah. credentials. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't stop us from doing interdisciplinary work, yeah. and sometimes, you know, it is it is less. Uh, it, it is these choices are driven by the demands of the project.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: in, in my case, this was uh, certainly the, the case, uh, you know, with the, in, in this particular project, and um, I, I I don't see how this work could have been done without borrowing methodologically and theoretically. Um, from different arenas.
0: So, so maybe we can start there. Could could you spend a little bit of time talking in very practical terms? But how you did your research? How how did you uh, did you use an interpreter? Did you when you say you spent lots of time on the ground? Did you choose? How did you choose particular sites? Maybe you could say something about that process.
1: I you know when I. Uh, um, I had visualized that this envisioned at the start that this project would take me between anything between six and eight months mm. um, that was a severe <laughs> of, so and and I realized in the first couple of months that i I couldn't put together a survey instrument in mm. two months that you know it, it took me three to four months of work to design a survey instrument to have it translated into the local language and translated back so, to, you know, to, so that, you know, the, the, the there was nothing, no mm-hmm. intended meanings lost in communication. Mm-hmm. Rwanda, Kenya Rwanda is actually a very, very nuanced language. Sometimes mm-hmm. meanings can change depending on, you know, the subtle use of this word or that word. And, and, and so it took me a whole lot of time. Um, I I moved around, I I met a whole bunch of different people and it took a lot of intensive work just to get started with the project. Um, It took weeks to get the research permit. It took some time to build relationships with uh, political elites, um, those who were in the Ministry of Justice, for example, or the police department, the Rwanda National Hmm. Police who would give me a permit to to do the work in in the prisons, to Hmm. interview prisoners that confessed and not confessed. I needed permits from the Ministry of Local Affairs to actually go and stay with local people uh, for an extended period of time. Um, So the process of getting permits, the process of designing these questionnaires, finding uh, interpreters. I ended up working with a team of four Rwandans Hmm. Um, three were Hutu and uh, one um, was Tutsi. Mm-hmm. Um, each of them, I, I allocated different parts of the work, so there were two uh, research assistants that I worked with who were just translating Rwanda documents into English for me. Hmm. Um, church reports, NGO reports, government reports in Rwanda um reports that had just come out in Kenya one and it would take months before there were any official translations. Yeah. And so, you know, I I, I had to invest my uh, uh fieldwork funds uh into sort of you know that translation work even before official English versions or French versions had had come out. Um so all of that took a long time. Then I the other big lesson I learned was you know, when you try to do a survey with closed-ended uh, questions, um, you uh, I was barely able to scratch the surface of what hmm. was
2: happening. Yeah.
1: And uh, my initial plan was to, um, to undertake uh, these surveys at five different locations and spend a month in each place. And a month in each place left me with more questions and puzzles and more details than the survey was able to answer. (laughs) I found that, you know, after a visit to every research site, I was updating the Quest Survey Quest instrument. Mm. I I was including new questions, throwing out old ones. And that just seemed to me, you know, I was just getting started. And already, you know, I was at the end of six or seven months in Rwanda uh, with fieldwork money quickly running out. So um, I reapplied for uh, funding. Mm-hmm. and I explained why I needed you know, yet another seven, eight months. And I decided then at, at the next stage to spend much more time in one or two places, really immerse myself. So I undertake the survey at the same time that I was doing in-depth interviews, uh, at the same time that I was actually observing these trials, and really sink my teeth into the dynamics of one community that I select for theoretical reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that became sort of the primary strategy. And, and, and that's where, you know, at, the, I, in, at this particular rural site in southern Rwanda that I spent almost five months, five to six months, um, doing all of these things simultaneously um, and triangulating between my you know, the survey data against the ethnographic observations, against the interviews, mm-hmm. doing repeat interviews, um, sometimes not able to do repeat interviews, but just, you know, casual conversations if I happen to encounter this person on the road, hmm. so to divert this person and have a drink and have a chat and make sure I followed up on all of these other questions that are bothering me. Um, that kind of access that I enjoyed because, and, and partial trust. I always say it's important to remember that even after all of my immersion and embedding and the fact that I tried to live with, you know, I lived in coffee sheds, I lived in in people's homes, a spare room that they had because their child was, you know, studying somewhere else and Mm -hmm. uh, without electricity, without running water. All of that investment in in building trust would only yield me partial, uh, 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 would open up you know the occasional opportunity to to really observe uh people where you know in in their unguarded moments or people would let down their guard only occasionally uh, those encounters were rather few and far between mm. uh, and 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 given the fact that we were talking you know punishments prison sentences and and and, and betrayals friend betraying friend son betraying father uh, uh and And the whole process depended on people uh betraying each other's trust essentially
2: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. um in order to advance themselves whatever that whatever in whatever way they thought you know they were defining their self interest. People were very very guarded, and the max I could get was partial trust um so you know there were there were a variety of means by which I tried to gather my data, and it was important to sort of triangulate all of that and and try to see, you know, what broad patterns um, uh, emerged. So, um, and I needed an interpreter at all times. Yeah. Um, I, I realized early on that, you know, in moments when there were unguarded encounters, that a situation was unfolding right in front of me, I happened to be in the thick of it. Uh, and yet, the the actors, the primary actors, were proceeding in an unguarded fashion. I I, I often instructed my interpreter not to lean over and translate
2: hmm.
1: while while the situation was unfolding. And and I I had absorbed enough of a basic understanding of Kinyarwanda to get a a a, 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 a what shall I say a working intuition yeah. of what was going on, who was saying what, and what the arguments were, what the debate was. And I would I would ask my um, interpreter to fill me in later that evening. Mm-hmm. So most nights were spent writing copious notes by candlelight. <laughs> um, you know, trying to remember and and, and all the things that I had stored away in my head
2: uh-huh. because
1: I didn't want to make a show of writing everything down or walking hmm. walking around with a big notebook and pencil. Um, all of that note taking happened at night and and you know preceded by intense engagements with you know what did i see what did you saw what was that person saying mm-hmm. and you know did i understand correctly and what do you think was happening in the interview how can we do this better and and so on so it it, it was it was mentally exhausting emotionally mm-hmm. draining physically demanding work uh and and risky work because at the end of the day um so before I, I left the I, I left the research site, for example, um a person who who we had become quite friendly with, let me say,
2: mm-hmm.
1: informed me that he had been asked by you know, the day before I was scheduled to arrive. And which they knew because, you know, I had to apply for permits and, and, and they knew that I would be arriving. Mm-hmm. He had been asked to sort of, you know, keep a tab on who I was talking to, if I was going, what I was huh. doing. And, and so on and and but I was told that only at the end of my, but I had not <laughs> Who was me and who was not? I had to assume that everyone was watching us. Huh. Everyone was trying to figure out what we were doing, what our interest was, whether we were government spies, and you know, and um, uh, and and so on. So fieldwork was a very very uh, interesting process, fraught with difficulties, um, and we had to make decisions you know sort of every day you know how we would proceed how we can not make them you know as you know a mistake or you know something that we thought was a mistake we had made the day before or, you know how mm. can we do things a little bit better how can we build trusting relationships how can we engage with people in a way that you know they open up one of the things i did was um um i uh, these were not short interviews so you know i and that was one of the things I realized early on, short, quick interviews, like 30 minutes and an hour, I was mm-hmm. not going to get what I wanted. Mm-hmm. So these interviews sometimes took three to four hours, and I would often break for lunch and then invite the respondent to share a meal. Wow. And, um, I, and I, I could see that it mattered a great deal that we were sharing food, and it, I, you know I was just not buying drinks at a bar. Mm-hmm. which is a big part of local culture, to sit around, um, you know, in the evening and, and share a few drinks and and, and, and discuss things, um, uh, but, you know, to actually, you know, to have lunch that was prepared for us, to share that food and, and then to sort of, you know, not talk business as it were, but just to relax and share a few jokes and and, and, and laugh, and that would give them an opportunity to know more about my life and where mm-hmm. I came from and... You know, I would I would tell them stories about my life as a student in America, and you know my life growing up in India, and um, you know, um, and and I think that helped. It helped to it helped in lowering that guard. It helped them see me see me. I I, I hesitate to say friend, but more it was easier to think of me as a friend. Uh huh. Um, and I didn't really have to rely on. You know the verbal assurances that go into oral consent. You know, don't mm-hmm. worry, um, but then I'm gone. <laughs> <You know?
2: laughs>
1: uh, I, I'm gone after that interview, and, and so that I stayed and I, I shared to the extent that I could, and you know, I, I lived like them, and I. Mm-hmm. I was often uh, visited by uh, officials from the mayor's office, and the mayor's office was at the district and. Um, at that particular community, it was an hour, hour and a half uh, walk by uh, walk away, huh. and uh, sometimes they would expect um, that I would go. So I often walked there and walked back because I didn't have a car, um, and it, it mm. would be not very judicious to have a car in those uh, in that situation. Um, but um, you know, they they saw me walking back and forth almost to report to the district, much like they would uh, for different reasons. Um, they saw people from the district drop in and asked me questions, check on me, as it were, and and that made me those things. I I I I, I am fairly certain that they, it was easier for me for them to see me as one of them mm-hmm. rather than you know someone who'd come from the outside and you know that I was answering for what I was doing in the same way that the local population had to answer for a variety hmm. of different, uh, certainly helped. Um, I I Wrote a piece in in 2012. It was published in the journal field methods about you know the what went into uh, Developing these partially trusting relationships and Mm -hmm. and how they work So if anyone's interested that might be something to look at
0: And Anu helpfully has a a copy of her CV posted on her website at the university So that's where I saw that as I was doing the research for this article. So you can find that citation there you, you frame your argument in this book around the idea of clientelism and patronage. And, and for some of our listeners, those are familiar terms, but for others, perhaps not. So could you maybe briefly talk about what those two terms mean?
2: I,
1: I use them interchangeably. And uh, the argument is that an author- in an authoritarian regime, the, the, the party in power um, is pretty much an unrivaled patron. Um, the RPF has eliminated pretty much every source of opposition in from civil society. Pretty much every viable source of opposition from other political elites, organize, other political parties, um, um, and, and so on. Um, there's a long history of assassinations, abuses, repression, draconian laws in place, um, and so on that um, that have produced you know, the politics of silence and acquiescence,
2: mm. essentially, mm-hmm.
1: where organized uh, groups are concerned. Um, uh, and, and so the, the RPF regime is pretty much an unrivaled patron, uh, mm. uh, and, and the, the incentives to confess, the incentives to denounce, the rewards, as it were, that came from participating in these processes um, could be withdrawn. At any time, mm-hmm. uh, there was certainly no opposition to say that, you know, now you know, you, these are things that you can't do. So incentives directed at individuals could be withdrawn at any time. Um, and so I, 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 I frame this as the politics of patronage, that mm-hmm. you know, these selective incentives are targeted at generating individual compliance with government expectations. Right now you denounce the per, this person about you whom you have information. And the reason you have information is that perhaps you know you are related, you've heard some somebody talking, or you are friends with this person and, and the government pretty much expected that people would undertake, you know, see this almost as a civic obligation, as a moral mm-hmm. obligation to the new Rwanda, prove themselves patriotic Rwandans by betraying by by undercutting these social ties. Mm. Um, confessions you know again like I said the guilty pre-bargain that you would get reduced sentences if you confess by the way you know part of the the pre-bargain deal is that you have to denounce others who participated with you Um, and so the more people confess the more the list of accused began to grow Mm -hmm. um, because the confessees were simply supplying additional names Um, and that was where the that was where the government had leverage, because if you've confessed and and in, in hopes that um, you would be able to benefit from the plea bargain deal, um, and you've denounced all of these people that you were once close to, now you're really vulnerable, uh, you're really vulnerable. And, and the data suggests that a lot of these people who confessed were actually holding out because they didn't trust that the, they would actually benefit from the the plea bargain deal. Mm. They thought that confessions were a way to to induce people to incriminate themselves, so the government could identify, you know, their targets for indiscriminate punishment. Um, and so they didn't trust the government. All of that mistrust, hostility, misperception, um, resulted in sort of foot dragging and a lot of delays. People were not inclined to jump at the idea that, you know, jump at the, the offer that was being made to them. And, yeah. and yet, with time, they did. And the, uh, my argument becomes, you know, people calculate. They were, you had to look at the procedures in the, the court. In the community, if there were more people who were ready to denounce you, and you could not find the same number of people to defend you, then you would likely be found guilty. If you were found guilty, you will not be able to avail of the pre-bargain deal.
2: Mm-hmm. And so
1: depending on how these social processes went, the process of mounting a coalition in your defense to counter that counter coalition that was standing you know, ready to accuse you, depending on how that process went and the likelihood, people's calculations about the likelihood they'd be found guilty and forfeit their chance at the pre-bargain deal. If they found themselves in that situation, they confessed, hoping against hope that the government would follow through. Mm. Um, but once they they confessed, they were really, you know, they had no way. They had no way of knowing whether the government would follow through or not. They were simply hoping for the best. And the leverage there was that the government's leverage there was that there was always the possibility that they could just yank this deal. From under their their feet, they were mm-hmm. because there were no checks and balances, and because of the mistrust um, that 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 um, ordinary Hutu had of the regime, they they believed that that was a very real possibility. And so there were actually also cases where, you know, sometimes people were acquitted and then tried again.
2: Mm-hmm. The
1: law provided for the possibility that you know if you were accused, just one additional accusation of any wrongdoing you you would stand you could possibly forfeit you know any benefit that you had received on account of your confession, plus you'd be liable for the you know the the punishment for this additional crime hmm. and 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 so you know the confessions produced a whole lot of very vulnerable people yeah. um, and and I trace how those who had confessed were actually um, ended up with publicly very favorable views of the government. So although they were privately very, um, quite suspicious, uncertain, um, uh, they did not think that the government had the moral authority to rule, but, you know, they, were, they would be the same people willing to go out and advocate on behalf of the government. They would go out advocating for confessions um, amongst, you know, groups that had not confessed and so on. So one of the things, one of the effects of confession I find is you know the the inclination of confesses to turn into advocates for the government,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: uh, and they did that. You know, with their changing attitudes, they did that in terms of various kinds of behaviors, um, and so I, I I argue that that was one of the great um, ways in which that the 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 patronage dynamic worked, that the unrivalled patron extended these incentives and there was always the very real possibility that they could withdraw these incentives at any time. Um, and, and people were simply responding in different ways to that possibility. Mm. Um, and I, I traced the same dynamic amongst those who had confessed um, and also amongst the judges, that people were behaving because mm. they wanted certain benefits while they were very aware that those benefits could be yanked um, if the government suspected them of disloyalty or working against mm-hmm. the government or working to subvert government policy and so those who jumped at the 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 opportunity to take advantage of these benefits actually ended up being very loyal supporters
2: mm-hmm. um, uh, Of government policy.
0: So so let me ask you about the judges in a minute Let's go back to the confesses and the, the people who confessed and, and the people who denounced
2: right.
0: so Somebody who hasn't read your book might look at this and say, or listen to this and say, well, I don't understand this coalition thing. Isn't there some kind of evidentiary basis for prosecution or judgments that go beyond um, one group says this and one group that says that? So what what are the challenges that these courts are facing in that
2: regard?
1: Right. Um, that was one of the, the, the shortcomings in the existing literature, that there was no analysis of, how the formal procedures actually worked so what did mm-hmm. the judges manuals say what were the procedures that were actually applied in these courts and um, the way it worked you know there was there was really no forensic evidence no hmm. hard evidence that was used in these courts and the manuals and the the training manuals and the law books all encouraged the judges to undertake you know verification missions and that they should go to the sites where Mm -hmm. you know the 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 crimes had been committed and they should try to again triangulate and try to find out to the best of the ability what was going on and what was not that they should not take information at face value but the truth of the matter is given the caseload and these courts are processing you know uh, 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 they were coming up with one verdict every couple of weeks um, and, and the speed at which so and, and, and the government was very clear that you know they wanted these cases processed quickly and and, and so given the caseload, more than 1 million individuals mm-hmm. um, tried in between you know, the trials act between 2002-2005 was the pretrial process where the dossiers were compiled on the accused and you know the various lists were compiled uh, lists of property that was damaged uh, and so on but the trials really began in 2005 and the whole process wrapped up by You know, it was drawing to a close by 2008 2009 and the last mm. courts finished the work in 2012 so you can imagine you know, a million cases pushed yeah. through these courts in, 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 in a, a, a very short period of time. So there was no real possibility that the judges would actually go to these sites and mm. Um, sometimes there was, you know, other than time pressures and, you know, caseload, there were issues like, um, you know, there was just no, no, uh, there were no uh, no infrastructure available. So even official monitors, um, uh, they were responsible. One person could be responsible for overseeing anywhere between 6 and 30 courts. And um, obviously this person could not be everywhere on mm-hmm. the same day. Mm-hmm. and um uh, sometimes um these official monitors um said that there was simply no money to pay for fuel they were assigned a motorcycle uh, to cover very long distances um sometimes very you know you know the, the mountainous terrain and and dirt tracks and you know it was not the easiest thing to move from one place to the other and so um there was very there was little there was not enough let me say by way of uh, supervision by way of monitoring these trials as they actually went about their business in uh in many cases these uh, monitors these official monitors collected these reports from judges after the days events were over so hmm. they would they would visit these areas maybe a day after they had held uh their proceedings and then you know the judges by then had completed some paperwork which they handed over and so official reports were compiled based on the data collected in this fashion so the reality was that, given the number of people who were accused and the the, the speed with which genocide happened, you know there was no one filming these things. Mm-hmm. There were no reports on the activities of each one of these, you know, more than one million people. And so, really, it ended up being uh, about you know coalitions and counter coalitions. Mm-hmm. So how many people have testified against you, and can I mobilize a counter coalition that is equal to all of those people plus at least one and the judges often said look i mean three or four people cannot be lying at the same time <laughs> so uh, you know if 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 you were the defendant and i managed to mobilize you know three or four people and and you had only two people to speak in your defense and i had three or four people who perhaps had had concocted a story you know, and and ironed out any contradictions and you know problems, and they were kind of sticking to to the same story, and and you know the judges had little to go by other than the version provided by the 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 <laughs> uh, the side that was that had more mm-hmm. people, um, mm-hmm. and 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 so it was as banal as that, and and I you know the argument is that. There, there was, you know, some, some observers said that what we had in the Gachacha Courts was mass injustice. Mm. Um, but I argue having you know, observed these, court, these cases up close and is that, you know, you can't say one way or the other. I mean, I think the best you can do is to say that there was always the potential for miscarriage of justice. But there's really no way, and the judges didn't know themselves, you know, that the coalitions that actually won the day... That prevailed in court were coalitions that were telling the truth or were telling lies. There was simply no way to tell. And so the problem with the courts was not that they were necessarily—you can't dismiss them as kangaroo courts outright. They did a great deal of good, um, and I, 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 you know, I go into that in some detail. Um, that you know, there was a, a trials were actually places where people learnt about what happened. Not everyone knew everything about what had happened even in their own communities, because a lot of people just preferred to stay home because they knew horrible things were happening. And that if they, you know, ventured outside, they could be, you know, forcibly co-opted to join this squad or that that squad or that Mm. group. And a lot of people preferred to stay home and, and didn't really know the full extent of what was happening. And so for the community, it was a learning experience as case after case came to trial and people presented their versions this way or that and you know these things were up for debate as to you know who's telling the truth and and people were contesting these things quite vigorously um and and you know it's a it's a pity at the end of the day that it was hard to tell because there was no hard evidence but the fact was that you know every trial was a crucible where people learned about what happened and competing versions of events were presented and people had a chance to, you know, contest and challenge the facts and, 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 and present their version of events. And the judges, you know, at the end of the day, the judges decided one way or another and that became the official record. Many times, you know, the accused were shamed by by the judges. Um, so, so, you know, they, they would try to present... Um, versions that, that minimized their role and, you know, when the, 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 the narratives um, that were available clearly suggested that they had done more than they were saying and and yet some of these people were asking for reduced sentences, they were appealing for, you know, uh, uh, clemency and so on and the judges made it a point to shame them in public and and, and that often reduced a lot of these people to... To tears. I mean, they hmm. went down on their knees and for the first time they actually looked at uh, the victim's family eye to eye and begged for forgiveness. And, and in some ways these moments were quite cathartic. I mean, as, as an outsider sitting in court, I could feel the release of tension hmm. in the courtroom. I could feel the relief when both sides could shake hands and, and, and promise, even you know, one side promised to make amends to the best of their ability you know, for example, to volunteer their their services when it came harvest time, or to volunteer to rebuild this person's home and, and and so on, or to be there for that person if any need arose. And so these were quite cathartic moments where people learned and shared and experienced collective relief and reflected together. And so, you know, I, I think it would be quite short sighted to dismiss these courts as as as, you know, canada courts outright or mass injustice. The, the problem is that, you know, the, the question mark will remain forever as to how many, how many convictions were true and how many convictions were false. Yeah. Um, my feeling is that given, the fact that given the fact that the process depended on denunciations and that there were so many accusations, I think most people who were guilty eventually were, hmm. you know, caught up in the webs of the Gachacha courts and found guilty. But there were also a significant number of innocents who were caught up. So I, I think what can be said at the end of the day is not that is that very many guilty did not likely get away. The process actually did ensnare mm-hmm. most of the people who were guilty, um, but the process also ensnared some people who were innocent. And I think there is no, we don't have in the absence of better data, you know, we don't really know what that number is.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so, let's go back to the judges for a minute so So, who are these judges and and why did they choose so so the majority of people in Rwanda are Hutu, presumably yes. most yes. of the judges are also Hutu, which means that at the end of these courts they're going to have to go back to this community or and and be in this community throughout the process why would why would a judge decide they wanted to be a judge
1: That was the puzzle, right and uh, you know particularly when you think uh, when you when you know that um, these positions were not remunerated there were there were no mm-hmm. salaries to be paid to these judges so why were all these people volunteering to undertake this hard work and it was physically hard because um you know they were working two three days a week pretty much day to night filling up dossier after dossier working from you know morning well until you know it was dusk and it was difficult to see um the opportunity costs were significant uh because they were mostly peasants so that meant you know these two Mm. three days that they were working on these cases they were not farming um and um they complained all the time about being hungry about being tired um in in most cases in most in at at the at the cell level courts which was basically the grassroots absolutely the 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 courts at the grassroots level um there was you no know, they didn't meet in um in, in in formal in in rooms so they were mm. pretty much literally sitting on the grass sitting outside the um, uh, outside the government office local government office if there was a formal building for the local office,
2: hmm. uh,
1: we are talking mid 2000s. At that time, most sectors um, uh, did not have a formal building uh, or a designated building that was the space where government, local government work would be done. Um, and 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 so you know, if it rained, they had to scramble collect their papers. And at the end of the day's work, if, if it was you know if there was a blinding sun, they just withstood that and kept writing, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and you know, they complained of hunger, their stomachs growling, so, you know, it was really a puzzle why why they chose to do this work, and the survey there uh, helped a good bit, mm-hmm. and I, I, I saw that, um, I noticed that a lot of them were already, they had these prominent positions in local associations, and you know, in in churches, in local cooperatives, in uh, credit and savings associations, and so on. Um, significant numbers had important positions in these associations. So there were presidents and treasurers and secretaries and um, um, uh, uh, and, and so on. Um, and 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 that set me. Th- and and they had held these positions for a while. Um, these predated. Uh, 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 the gachacha courts, and mm-hmm. so you know clearly here was a non-official, a social elite, as it were,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, nicely positioned to take advantage of these positions that opened up, and these were elected positions. So you know the argument was that you know they had they had leverage over their communities because they were already you know in in positions of power and enjoyed some influence. Um, and and they could win elections. Um, I noticed also through ethnographic work that many of them, many of the, the 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 leading members of these courts were related to the leading perpetrators in those areas. So oh. <laughs> um, through extended family ties, it was not always mm-hmm. you know a very close relative, but they were they you know there were extended family ties um and you know through ethnographic work looking through family lines looking at how you know different units or different branches of the family lived and and who had problems with who it seemed to me that you know this was you know the one of the incentives was that when this layer was essentially removed from circulation once the the the, the punishments policy was put into effect and the accusations started piling up and a lot of these people were accused and and sent to prison awaiting trial, Um, you know, one of the incentives was that their kin, their family members would, Hmm. if they could capture these courts or capture the leading positions on the courts, could try to come up with verdicts in their favor and maybe not wipe their dossiers clean. But at least, you know, give them, you know, the, 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 you know as, as beneficial a verdict as, as was possible. Um, my observation, again, the data suggests that they were not interested in doing this for everybody who passed through their court. Mm. But their, their main goal was to, was to look after the interests of, you know, people they knew, people they were related with, people they had an interest in saving. Um, For the rest of the caseload, they could be quite impartial, actually. Not that one of the criticisms of the courts was that, you know, can Hutu really be impartial when it came to the cases of thousands of other Hutu? And the answer is yes. If they were not related or they had no prior links, they could be they had no immediate interest in that case. Um, And often they did not know the hundreds of people who passed through their courts. They did not you know, know them or had any prior knowledge of their cases. So, in that sense, they were literally they 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 approached these cases with with impartiality, with a sense of neutrality, and the only thing they went by the only thing they could realistically realistically go by was really sort of the balance of coalition and counter coalition. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: but so so um, one of the the third reason that I, I, I found when i was looking at their political profiles was that large numbers of them had were formerly members of the rpf
2: hmm.
1: and almost 15% which is a relatively small number had actually moved into prominent party positions at the hmm.
2: uh,
1: grassroots level uh, so they were vice chairman of the cell and you know um, campaign managers of the RPF at the local level, and and various other positions, not insignificant positions that they occupied. The other interesting thing was also that many of them had simultaneously, or perhaps before they were they had they applied for judgeships or were elected to judgeships, they held local government positions. So mm-hmm. they were local administrative officials at the grassroots. So here was. When you put all of these things together, you, there was a clear pattern of a local elite with access hmm. to social sources of power, separate from you know, any, any authority they are deriving from government or, not, or from the RPF. And, and that's sort of ready and waiting. And when the elections for judgeships open up, they have an impersonal stake uh, in, in, in these courts. The courts also give them an opportunity to, to exercise good a good amount of power over the local population. They had the power to authorize detention they had the power to release someone even if on a temporary basis they had the power to to uh put a hold on people's property if they thought that you know this person would flee and and, and not um follow through on the uh, uh, um uh, on the reparations uh part of the sentence um so they had a good bit of you know significant powers that they enjoyed then and it gave them it it gave them it it gave them power over their communities it gave them mm-hmm. access to positions that they could use to to benefit their friends and close family members they used these positions to move into grassroots administrative jobs or they used pre-existing the grassroots administrative jobs to move into these judgeships. Hmm. So they were busily establishing themselves as the <laughs> grassroots apparatus of a Putsi-dominated state. Sorry. So let me ask them: then, Go ahead,
2: yeah.
0: if, if, if in fact they're busily establishing and they're able to carve out a space to protect certain relatives, as you say, maybe not near relatives, but far relatives or friends, yeah. What does the what does the government get out of this? I mean, clearly they do get convictions and they do get to work through this, but they are giving the judges a certain amount of autonomy. What what do the judges get or the government
1: get out of this? Um, the, my argument is that a Tutsi-dominated state basically secures for itself a, a Hutu a, a, an apparatus a grassroots apparatus of through which they govern. Hmm um and that essentially you know helped them to run the tribunals and establish themselves as a you know a, a regime that's interested in justice and reconciliation and that enjoys the uh, enjoys legitimacy and consent of the population although you know it may be quite far from the truth but you know if you look at the numbers of people that participated and made a success in terms of you know just bringing these courts to completion, processing this massive caseload, you know, the large numbers of convictions. And by that, those, and, and at a very reasonable cost, I think $40, $40 million for hmm. 10 years of work, where the ICTR, the International Criminal Tribunal, uh, absorbed almost $3 million a year
2: hmm. that
1: it worked. So, you know, on the backs of unpaid judges. and And, and so... And and, and and when you think of, when you look at the fact that these, although you know, these tribunals are over and the judgeships were ad hoc positions, the fact that so many judges were moving into the more permanent government, posi- government jobs and RPF uh, party positions at the local level shows how a, a, a group that was once the enemy combatant,
2: mm-hmm.
1: the RPF not so long ago was an enemy combatant, They came into power through their military victory, not through negotiations. The negotiations were, you know, uh, were not a great success. Uh, Through military victory and had very few social networks or knowledge about the grassroots population to start off with. Ends up at the end of the Gachacha process with, with a grassroots apparatus of rule that not only helped to make a success of the trials which everyone thought You know, observers call this a a fantasy. At the Mm -hmm. time that the government said that we are going to do this, there were observers who called this, you know, a a, a fantasy, a a crazy ambition that would never see, uh, that would never be fulfilled. Um, And yet, you know, by by 2012, these courts had wrapped up uh, at minimal cost, and the government ended up with an apparatus of rule at the Mm -hmm. local level that was staffed by Hutu. And while, you know, it is questionable whether Hutu think that the RPF has the moral authority to rule, and one of the big things here is that, you know, the RPF-dominated government has not made an equally strenuous or comprehensive effort to investigate war crimes against Mm -hmm. Uh, Hutu. That's one of the big, you know, uh, things, you know, that didn't seem to matter. That didn't seem to stop people from complying, from participating, from consenting, uh, from responding to various kinds of incentives, both, you know, explicit as in the guilty plea bargain or implicit, which is, you know, we will look the other way. Uh, we are not going to interfere in the daily workings of the court as long as you can manage the court without, you know, creating, you know, massive amounts of discontent at the local level that might spill over into you know, local disturbances and local clashes. As long as you can manage the court process orderly and, uh, uh, you know, um, prevent a local outbreaks of violence, do it speedily and and produce more convictions than acquittals, there is no yeah. reason to micromanage the court process. Hmm. And, uh, you know, as we see from the judges' data, both from the survey and the ethnography, um, uh that there were people in, in large numbers, almost a quarter million judges, who responded to that call and, and participated and, and, and you know, did that job without any direct or formal compensation, you know, what you hmm. think of a, a routine salary or, you know, uh, a formal office space. Uh, there were no formal uh, remuneration involved. So, but there were other perks, other benefits, and, and this layer was ready and waiting and, and, and responded to the government
0: hmm. well well there's way more in this book than than we've had time to get to but but I, I know that we our time is growing short so I, so I would encourage listeners to go out and, and look at this. This is a really good book um, and, and and I learned a tremendous amount from it. So I always end the, the interviews by by asking uh, the same couple of questions. Uh, and so, Anu, I guess the first thing I would ask you is, um, what should I read this weekend? What are, or or maybe watch? What's a book or two or a movie that you found meaningful to you or important to you as you were doing this research or thinking about this topic?
1: I, you know, I I browse through a lot of different literatures. Mm. You know, there's a vast literature on transitional justice. There's a literature on clientelism. There's a literature on micro-level work on genocide. Um, hmm. Two or three books in particular influenced the way I thought about, I thought about the, you know, how, I, 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 I thought about the calculations and attitudes of, of uh, individuals. Um, mm-hmm. I was influenced particularly by Scott Strauss's work, uh-huh. it's his 2006 book um, titled The Order of Genocide. Where he 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 un- does these surveys on individual attitudes, finds no evidence for eliminationist uh, anti-Tutsi attitudes, and yet you know he finds that there were there were stereotypes about you know what Tutsi as a group um, stood for, you know that they were. That, that in particular, you know, Tutsi elites, that they were power hungry, you know, they were, they looked for power and, you know, they were basically untrustworthy. So there was evidence of stereotypes about the group as a whole, even though, even though that did not necessarily translate into a, you know, a commitment to kill every single mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: And that complexity, you know, that nuance was very important as I... I undertook my interviews, um, and I, I, I found c- confirmatory evidence of that because, and here I might suggest this this other uh, film, it's called, it's a documentary, it's called As We Forgive. There is so much work on clientelism, um, Beatrice Magaloni's work on uh, punishment regimes, and she was basically looking at how uh, one party-dominant authoritarian regimes survive, and her case study was Mexico and uh, her main argument was she came up with this term a punishment regime but she was not looking at criminal justice she was looking at how a hegemonic party buys the loyalty buys electoral votes by denying them fiscal transfers and granting them fiscal transfers or denying them as the case may be Uh, and so you know that work influenced me to a great deal as I I pulled up that idea of punishment regime and applied it to the Rwandan case where it was literally the RPF dominated government yeah. was, 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 uh, had implemented a punishment regime. In this case, the incentives were not fiscal transfers. They were you know, reduced sentences. They were opportunities hmm. for various kinds of private gain um, and, and so on. Um, and, and so Beatrice Magaloni's work on, uh, clientelism and the punishment regime, um, also influenced my thinking to a great deal. So if I, if I, you know, I mean, amongst a lot of other important, but if I had to mention just two, I think, you know, these two might be good books
2: to look at.
0: So you finished this project and as you and I were talking about earlier, um, you're deepened in another semester, but but I've never met an academic that didn't have another project in mind, even if it's not started. Yeah. <laughs> what, what What's your next project?
1: Um, I'm in the very early stages of two different projects. One mm-hmm. I want to mention here, um, it is building on this idea of infrastructural power, and it is an idea that Michael Mann, who's a sociologist, um, mm-hmm. proposed. And the idea is how um, states... Manage to implement policies with the consent and cooperation of societies uh, or the populations living mm-hmm. in those states, and you know the the manner in which you know state elites or ruling elites may not start out with real sources of social power, but they're able to drop anchor and and into uh, you know various sources of social power be they you know ethnic groups leader leaders of ethnic groups or um, uh, you know uh, religious leaders and so on and and they are able to build formidable states by dropping anchor deep into social sources of power and so i'm trying to i'm trying to bring two different literatures together the literature on state building and post conflict reconstructions mm-hmm and the existing work on infrastructural power and i'm trying to see to what extent you know what the gaps are in the the classic works on on state building and post hmm. reconstruction and if the literature on building infrastructural power has you know some answers there so hmm. it's it's more sort of sort of again i'm sort of uh, michael mann said in an interview that he pillaged through various literature <laughs>
2: <laughs> looking for
1: insights um, so I'm 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 pillaging, as it were, mm. um, and and I you know I'm I'm that's that project is you know in the very initial stages you know it involves vast amounts of reading, but I think there may be something there. Uh, there may be something practical there in terms of you know how we apply insights from say historical studies or insights from um comparative historical sociology um and, and sort of apply this idea of infrastructural power to
2: hmm.
1: you know the ways in which we try to build states and you know why those efforts succeed in some cases and why they don't.
0: Well I hope you enjoy your pillaging <laughs> in the middle of grading exams and, and preparing lectures or discussions or something. I've taken a lot of your time, so we should wrap it up. But I want to say thank you so much for being with us. Um, I learned a lot, as I said, from the book, and I enjoyed talking about it with you greatly. Um, And I hope whenever you're done with your next project, you'll come back on the New Books Network.
1: Thank you so much, Kelly. I enjoyed the talk.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Anu Chakravarti about her new book, Investing in Authoritarian Rule. Punishment and Patronage in Rwanda's Gacaca Courts for Genocide Crimes, published by Cambridge University Press. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcast. I hope you'll join us next time when I'll interview Michael Bryant about his book, A World History of War Crimes. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.